Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eco Vibes podcast, where we have interactive conversations on environmental topics with people from across the world. I'm your host, Khadija Stewart, and this is the Caribbean Ocean Perspective series brought to you by Sustainable Ocean Alliance. We have a great episode today. We head back to the Dutch Caribbean, back again to the island of Bonaire to chat with Tadzio Bovut, <laughs> director at Dutch Caribbean Nature Alliance, and we're going to be talking all about about the ocean's most misunderstood animal, shark. So welcome, Tadzio. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes, guys, this is the second time we're recording this, but second time's a charm. And unfortunately, Dr. Austin couldn't join us this time around, but he is definitely here in spirits, lending his knowledge and everything. So it's all I'm, good. I'm channeling him. I'm channeling him. Exactly. <laughs> so before we jump into things, I would love for you to tell me a bit about yourself and how you got into this field. Sure. So uh, as you said in your introduction, my name is Tazio. I am the director at DCNA, which is Dutch Caribbean Nature Alliance. Before this job, I managed the St. Martin Nature Foundation, which is the MPA on the island of St. Martin, through the St. Martin Nature Foundation, which is the NGO which has been appointed to manage. And before that, I was doing similar work on St. Eustatius in Bermuda, uh, on the East African coast. So yeah, for about 15 years, this has been my life and my passion. I now live on Bonaire since 2019 as a director of DCNA. DCNA is a network organization that provides financial and capacity support to all six islands of the Dutch Cap. So our job specifically is to safeguard nature on these islands. And the way that we do so is through supporting the protected area management organizations on all six islands to act as a knowledge broker and a knowledge repository uh, and also to act as a lobbying agency and a project management agency for conservation projects in the Dutch Caribbean. So that's it in a nutshell. Born and bred on St. Martin and as you mentioned, now living on Bonaire. Nice. So guys, he's definitely an expert in this field, no doubt about it. So um, I recently started following you on Instagram, right? And I see that you do a lot of diving and stuff like that. And I'm always want to know like what got you into diving and like what has been your most memorable diving experience thus far before we start talking about Ooh. sharks and all the serious science <laughs> stuff well it'll probably involve a dive with a shark but yeah <laughs> well what got me into diving you know single single parent household at the time uh, my parents split up when i was six years old um so growing up on st martin i wanted to take swimming lessons the guy you know i showed up a day for swimming lessons and all of the other students never showed up so the swimming instructor told me, uh, let's rent some snorkel gear at the water sports booth. And he took me out snorkeling when I was about 11 years old or 10. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. It blew my mind. From my mom's side, I also come from a line of fishermen and boat captains. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess that activated my uh, my gene, my recessive <laughs> seafaring and sea exploration gene. I was also obsessed by sharks uh, as any self-respecting boy at that age, nine, 10 years old uh, is. So I was obsessed by sharks and dinosaurs. Soon found out that dinosaurs were already extinct and then figured out how much pressure sharks were under. So I decided to, you know, become obsessed by sharks and explore mm -hmm. a career in uh, in ocean science. Uh, got certified as soon as I could when I was 14 years old. And that was... Uh, that was it. That was a shoot. <laughs> Oh, wow. To take it started from just a swimming lesson, you know, but yes. I was thinking about it recently because, you know, I interviewed yourself before and then I spoke with Sine from Refinua Bonnie and I'm really starting to realize like the Dutch Caribbean has it all 
But I don't want to say I have everything figured out when it comes to the marine space, but you guys are definitely leading the way in the Caribbean for, based on what I am seeing and stuff. And like, yeah, you know, hearing these stories. I mean, it, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends. I mean, you know, Dutch Caribbean is six islands. So, you know, Bonaire, while, Bonaire, while it is true that Bonaire uh, and some of the other smaller islands, and I'm thinking about Seba uh, in particular, so Bonaire and Seba in particular, um, because of their size, uh, because of sort of a historical uh, reliance for their economies on the diving industry, mm-hmm. they tend to have quite a, a decent structure when it comes to marine conservation. But on some of the other islands, it's still a struggle. I mean, we're only now going through the motions of getting uh, a proper marine park management plan put in place for the Aruba National Marine Park. We finally got the marine park just a few years ago. Uh, and we're doing the same thing for the Curacao Marine Park, which is only now really putting the management in place for a proper marine park because they had a paper park in place for quite some time. Um, so it really depends. It depends on the island. Of course, Bonaire is a diverse paradise. I mean, it says so yeah. on our license plate. <laughs> so there is quite a bit of, of attention here in, in protecting that region resource because of its economic importance but it's it's yeah it's sometimes good sometimes the struggle i mean we're not perfect here um, uh, we also struggle with quite some things but i mean working in in the other caribbean countries i also see the good work that is being done there i mean jamaica has an excellent marine conservation program run through the ue both at the uh, at the port royal marine lab and at discovery bay marine lab they do some of the most exciting work surmies uh, in Barbados. Um, so it's a Caribbean wide effort uh, that we support each other in our conservation work. I realize you left out Trinidad and Tobago, but we wouldn't get into that. <laughs> nah, man, Trinidad and Tobago also have quite, quite, I mean, the species uh, organization that exists on Trinidad and Tobago, Canaries on Trinidad. Yeah. Uh, so these are all critically important uh, organizations that support conservation throughout the region. So Trinidad by no means is, uh, <laughs> is being left behind. And then also, of course, the French islands. You can't forget the French oh, islands yes. the Caribbean islands. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about sharks. I want to know like what species of sharks can we find in the region? Uh, Caribbean, uh, off the top of my head, has about fifty species of sharks that can be found here. But then, of course, uh, some of them can be found more often than not. I mean, that that number of fifty also includes some deep water species, which are rarely seen. Uh, some migratory species, which have just been seen uh, infrequently throughout the region. But uh, if you talk about the sharks most frequently seen uh, or the most iconic species in the region, of course, uh, the first one that comes to my mind is a Caribbean reef shark. I mean, it says it in the name, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, the most recognizable species, I think, on our reef. It's uh, open water swimming sharks. You know, its preferred habitat are, is coral reef ecosystems, countries and territories that often do shark uh, shark diving activities. It's one of the most often encountered animals. So I think that's the most iconic species for the Caribbean. You know, the sad thing is about the Caribbean reef shark is that in April of this year, it was listed as endangered. So that means that the population is decreasing quite significantly through you know, human pressure. Uh, aside from the Caribbean reef shark, my favorite is the, Car- the tiger shark, mm-hmm. um, which can be found quite quite frequently in the Caribbean region. Uh, it's a migratory species, so it, it moves quite significantly between the different ecosystems uh, or the different ecoregions of the Caribbean. Uh, and then also you have uh, bull sharks, which are found infrequently in, in these islands, but have often been spotted, especially in, in the Lucayan archipelago. So more or less uh, Turks and Caicos, Bahamas, etc. Very interesting species, has the most testosterone of any animal uh, in the animal kingdom. So it's basically a pissed off 14-year-old boy. And yeah, and the other species, the nurse shark, which is often quite commonly found, uh, very, you know, a very highly 
side Fidelis uh, creature, so it stays more or less at the same location, mm-hmm. um, doesn't move around much. And then uh, you have hammerheads, um, whale sharks, which are all occasional visitors to, to the Caribbean region. And we also can't forget our flat sharks, which are our rays and skates, um, our Caribbean southern stingray, manta rays are often found here in this region. Uh, and eagle rays are also some of my favorite, very common here on Bonaire. Uh, so the Caribbean really is a, a region high in, in a population of the last Brac. So it's a good region to be working in. Yeah, I really didn't know or have an appreciation for how much sharks we had in the area mm-hmm. and stuff. So it's very insightful. And you kind of touched on one of the threats that they face but before we go into that i would love to know why it is you think people in the region are so afraid of sharks i know that you know previously it had all these ridiculous movies jaws everything and everybody's been so we've been so conditioned to be afraid of sharks and not understand them but they're so important so i would love you to elaborate a little bit on like the the importance or the role that they play in ensuring a healthy ocean and why we should not be afraid of them sure i mean sharks are apex level predators what that means is that they're at the top of the ocean food chain uh which means that they keep the ocean in balance uh it's often used cliche but it's Absolutely true that uh, as an apex level or, or a high trophic level predator, they are key in keeping the uh, the, the ecosystem of the Caribbean Sea in, in complete balance. Uh, you remove an apex level predator, uh, you have a proliferation of certain fish species, which causes other fish species to decline in population. Uh, that fish species, which previously has proliferated now because of that proliferation, has exhausted its food supply. So then they collapse and then you just have a cascading effect of collapsing on the Caribbean reef ecosystem. Uh, not only is that an issue or a problem for people like myself or my colleagues that, uh, that are active in the field of conservation and, and biology and ecology, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also critically important as, as a Caribbean people uh, that we maintain the health of our most important resource, which for me is undoubtedly the Caribbean Sea. Um, it depends on tourism, it depends... Uh, it connects all of the different uh, all of the different islands, regions, and territories of the Caribbean. Uh, we depend on it heavily for tourism, as I mentioned, for fisheries. Uh, so you know the health of the Caribbean Sea and its associated ecosystem, coral reef, uh, pelagic zones, uh, seagrass beds um, uh, are critical for Caribbean people in, in maintaining what it is that we are. You know what 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 makes us Caribbean people commerce, communication, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when we talk about our shark conservation work, we also put the focus on the importance that it has for the lives and livelihoods of the Caribbean population. Uh, We did an analysis in St. Martin where market value, uh, we valued a single species market value, so dead at the fish market at about $100, uh, whereas we analyzed how much a live shark contributes to the ecosystem during its lifetime, uh, people want to go diving and see sharks, et cetera, et cetera. And then we said, uh, you know, let's value the, the species based on that. And we came to about to about $750,000 for that animal during its 11 to 12 year lifespan. So it's significantly more, it's worth significantly more alive than that. So that's really what we want to communicate that it's important to uh, protect these species and its associated habitat. I think that's also important. Often you talk about protecting the species, protecting the species, uh, but it would be difficult to protect the species if the associated habitat hasn't been protected as well. But yeah, it's not easy because it is an animal uh, that is an apex level predator. Throughout human history, there have been some negative human shark interactions, which uh, have often been sensationalized, uh, which I understand. I mean, you have 
uh, you're, you're, you find yourself in an alien environment, i.e. the ocean, uh, and all of a sudden an animal comes and, and causes you to have a bad weekend, um, <laughs> which often, more often than not, finds itself in the media. And especially these days with, uh, with social media, for better or for worse, information gets shared rapidly, uh, mm-hmm. but also misinformation gets shared. So it is something that we are, are constantly uh, faced with. But at the same time in our communication, uh, you know, if I talk to people in Aruba, for example, that has a high U.S. market, I tell them that more people die uh, in the U.S., uh, by humans biting each other every year than by sharks biting each other. And there are some ridiculous statistics. More people die um, in the Caribbean from coconuts falling on their head. More people die from vending machines tipping over and crushing people. Um, more people die from dog bites, traffic accidents, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really uh, an event which does happen. I mean, it's an apex level predator. Uh, mm-hmm. It's built to hunt. Um, there are interactions which don't end well, which you might well understand if you have a 15-foot animal with razor-sharp teeth interacting with you. Um, but yeah, four, five, six fatal shark attacks globally should really be put into perspective, uh, considering the about 100, 150 million sharks that are uh, that are caught each year. Yeah, very true. And it's also their home. And we're going into the, yes, and infiltrating exactly. their home. Like if somebody exactly. comes into our house, we would want to fight. We would want yeah, to exactly. attack. So. I, I, I often chuckle when I uh, when I read some of the sensationalist news headlines, shark-infested waters, etc., etc. I was like, all right, well, where I live is a human-infested house. <laughs> okay, whatever, uh, <laughs> whatever you prefer to use to sell your media product is fine. Yeah. So I'm very curious to know what are some of the threats that sharks face specifically in our region? And well, how does that compare to some of the other areas across the world? I know that there might be some similarities, but I know like here, for example, in Trinidad, we love to eat our bacon shark on the North Coast. So sharks are definitely hunted and stuff. So Yeah, if you can shed some light, some insight on some of the threats they face in the region. Yeah, sure. I mean, we actually um, tagged a a pretty large female tiger shark on the Sabre Bank in 2016. And we were able to follow its migration all the way to the north coast of Trinidad. So you can imagine we were a little bit concerned that it would turn into a bacon shark. But luckily, it made it back up to uh, to Puerto Rico quite soon after that. Uh, the Caribbean region, it shares a similar impacts uh, as the species faces um, throughout the world. Uh, of course, there are issues related to overfishing, uh, especially from large industrial fishing boats, line fishing, um, shark finning does happen on uh, in the in the Caribbean, which is an unfortunate practice where the fins of the animal uh, are cut off while the animal is still alive. The animal is thrown back in the water, uh, and many sharks need to continue to swim to be able to to oxygenate their blood or being able to breathe, for lack of a better term, and they end up dying a horrible, uh, excruciating, very long, drawn out death. So, unfortunately, that practice does occur uh, in the Caribbean. But you know, I tend not to put too much blame on fishers, uh, especially the local artisanal fishermen. Um, these are fishers who've been fishing for generations and, and generations, uh, who also, you know, in my line of work, especially when I uh, talk about shark conservation that I depend heavily on for their expertise and their information. Um, so I think what is the most immediate threat in the Caribbean is loss of habitat because of unrestrained coastal development, building resorts in mangrove areas or building significant uh, harbor developments along coral reefs or destroying seagrass beds, all of the associated habitat which are important for the for the longevity of the species during yeah. this natural life cycle uh, has been degrading quite significantly in the Caribbean. So, you know, areas which were, for example, 
nursery areas formerly on St. Martin, uh, where we used to have a lemon shark population. Most of those mangrove areas have been removed because of tourist-focused coastal development. Uh, and because of that, there are no breeding areas anymore. And then you see a significant reduction in, in the number of, of species that you find. And yeah, I mean, the same goes for some of the migratory species. Uh, we were on an expedition in August this year where we ultrasounded a whole bunch of tiger sharks mm-hmm. uh, on the Saber Bank. So we found that these tiger sharks were in fact carrying carrying pups, but we we know that they don't birth these pups uh, on the Saber Bank. They probably go to islands which have significant pressure on, on their coastal ecosystems to have these, these baby sharks. So, you know, seagrass beds, mangrove areas, coral reefs are all of the coastal ecosystems which are under significant threat from coastal development. And then also climate change plays a significant role. I mean, if you have coral bleaching, uh, mm-hmm. which results in, in a lack in coral cover, uh, which means a lack in, in prey species for... Uh, for some of the the reef focused species, lack of fish, uh, lack of prey species, which means that there will be a lack of population of the predators of that fish species uh, and a drop in population as well. So I think uh, that altogether, uh, you know, forms the major threats for for the species in the Caribbean region. And again, you know, many people point fingers or single out fishers, but I really tend to to not, you know, of course we give them attention and we involve them in our scientific research and. And we create ownership uh, amongst the fisher population, but it is not uh, a, a group that I say is largely responsible for the reduction in our shark population. Unlike yeah. many other countries in Asia, uh, you have these large, long line factory boats, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, some some of the populations like Caribbean reef sharks uh, endangered and under such significant threat that even small scale artisanal fisheries can cause the animal to 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 become uh, or to disappear from certain areas. So. Because of these other effects, it has become no longer sustainable to fish for these animals at all. So it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a perfect storm. Hmm, this is very interesting. I know when I interviewed Jeffrey Bunas of the Caribbean Cetacean Society and I was asking him, you know, what are some of the threats that our whales and dolphins face? He said humans. He was like, flat out humans. He's like, we are the problems. Yeah. And that's yeah, yeah. no, definitely. But I found it was very interesting because I know when people think about sharks, especially in the region, we often think that it's basically the fishing industry that's the biggest threat to our sharks and stuff but not realizing that the loss of habitat is also playing a key role in that as well so i think it was great that you touched on that and you know inform people not to single out our fisher folks yeah no definitely i mean definitely and and we also depend when we do our shark conservation work we involve quite heavily because you know they they have traditional knowledge and and often know much better than than scientists who come from wherever they come from to be able to do research yeah Uh, they know much better what the uh what the status of the animal is so i tend not to uh, although like i mentioned if it's an animal that is under significant pressure even fishing it uh, one or two specimens can have a significant negative impact on the population of the species but i tend to really focus more on on protecting the habitat and ensuring that the species also has protection within that habitat to ensure a more sustainable and and long-term protection and conservation plan for for the animals. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Seems like a good plan of action. Um, You touched on the BCNA tiger shark expedition. I would love to know a little more about that. You said it was in August of this year. So what went into that expedition exactly? What did you guys find? 
any challenges? Sure, sure. Challenges. I mean, this is my second major tiger shark expedition that I'm uh, that I'm that I had the pleasure to lead, and they're always challenges. I mean, expedition <laughs> leading is, is more about people management than than right. the species itself. So it was it, it it was difficult, but it was successful, and 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 we we managed to reach some of our conservation goals. So. Uh, in 2015, we saw a sort of major decline in our shark population within the Dutch Caribbean. Mm-hmm. We then approached the Dutch National Postcode Lottery, which is a national lottery scheme that, that uh, exists in the Netherlands. And then they decided to, to fund our shark conservation work to the tune of 7 million euros uh, for a four-year project, which was you know, quite a big deal for us. And it was one of the bigger shark conservation uh, projects which were funded worldwide at the time. As a part of that project, we had various uh, components. So we had a component where we did quite a bit of community outreach. We went into the schools. We had community events, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is for all six islands in the Dutch Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had quite a bit of legislation and policy work that went into it, trying to get uh, the sanctuary established, which we were able to do in 2016, to have politicians commit uh, to increase conservation of the species and their habitat in the region. Uh, and then we also had a significant scientific component. So as part of that scientific component, I mentioned already that we worked with fishermen to be able to support our research. We worked with the dive industry to, you know, so that they can report their sightings. And then we figured that, okay, let's uh, kind of scale up a little bit in the work that we do. Uh, and let's do beta remote underwater video camera drops, basically. So it's a, a camera that is attached to a metal frame. Uh, there's bait attached to the metal frame. It's dropped into the ocean for a, a certain period of time. Then it's retrieved, and then we analyze the videos to see what species swim in front of the uh, the frame. And using that information, we were able to say, okay, let's now see if we can scale up another stage uh, and go to some of our acoustic telemetry. So acoustic telemetry work involved physically catching the animal, uh, making a small incision in its in its body cavity, inserting an acoustic transmitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, which will then be picked up by a whole bunch of acoustic receivers that we placed in the uh, in the ocean previously. Uh, and then using that information, we were like, okay, uh, it seems as if we have something going on here. So let's see if we can scale up to another level and do some of the satellite telemetry work, uh, which involves, again, catching the animal physically using a drumline method. I'll talk about that a little later. Um, taking the measurements of the animal and then attaching a satellite tag so that we can follow the animals. Uh, route uh, during a portion of its life life cycle. So we organized that expedition. Um, it was a remote. I mean, it's out on the Sable Bank. It's fifteen thousand square kilometers uh, in the middle of nowhere uh, in the Caribbean Sea. Uh, we had a mothership, a liveaboard. Uh, we had Discovery Channel on board that were filming. So it was quite an intense, uh, an intense expedition. During that expedition, we were able to satellite tag. Uh, four or five, my, my memory is not good. Uh, four or five, we were able to tag. And with that information, we were able to see that the animals that we tagged on the Sable Bank uh, really used the whole Caribbean basin as part of their, their migratory path. In addition to that, we started to tag on St. Martin as well, as well as on Sable and St. Eustatius. And, and then particularly on St. Martin, we were finding juvenile tiger sharks that were 90 centimeters long. So which uh, which means that they were just born. Mm-hmm. So with that information, uh, we were able to uh, again approach our funders, in this case, the World Wildlife Fund uh, in 2019. And we were able to say, look, I mean, the tiger sharks that we caught on the Saber Bank were all big females. They were all big fat females, which are important for reproduction. And then on top of that, 
Uh, when we tag in St. Martin, we find a whole bunch of juvenile tiger sharks. We know that there's movement because of the, the acoustic telemetry and the satellite telemetry that we did. We know that there's movement between the Saber Bank and St. Martin. So you know, we saw if we can put together a project where we can actually go to the Saber Bank and ultrasound um, tiger sharks. So we received the funding. Uh, again, same patient, same treatment. Um, we hired a boat, we chartered a boat, we spent a whole week out on the Sabre Bank. We had various pilot boats that supported us in our work. Uh, and we applied a method called drumlining. Uh, drumlining is a method that we adapted from a method that is used in South Africa and Australia specifically, where they, re you know, it's actually used to remove sharks from coastal areas, so to kill sharks. Right. Uh, of course, we adapted it a little bit to, <laughs> to not kill the animal, uh, but it allowed us to catch, I think it was 16 tiger sharks and 56 Caribbean reef sharks during that week out on the Sabre Bank. And during that expedition, which we also did together with uh, with Austin's group, who's our main collaborator with Shark Worker in the Caribbean Beneath the Waves, Mm -hmm. uh, we and Arizona State University, which was one of our scientific partners, uh, we were able to ultrasound uh, a number of tiger sharks and, and in fact establish that those tiger sharks were carrying pups. Uh, so that shows us that indeed um, the saber bank is important in terms of, of the life cycle of the species, whether they come there to breed or uh, they come there to feed during their gestation uh, or they have their pups there or they swim from there to go to the other islands, saber. Um, the other islands such as St. Martin, Stacia, St. Bart's or Anguilla uh, to have their pups, that, uh, that remains to be seen. So we also took blood samples, DNA samples, we satellite tagged them, ultrasounded them. Uh, so now we're at the stage where we're going to be analyzing all of the data. And then hopefully the idea is uh, that with the data, we'll be able to drive more efficient decision-making for, for the conservation of the species. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to touch on after I got over the fact that this is also very interesting to me. And I feel like I'm learning <laughs> so much. And I know for sure our listeners are definitely sitting down like, wow, okay, maybe I should get a pen and paper and stuff. Because, yeah, no, it's super informative. And like you said, you guys are collecting very important data and it would drive evidence-based decision-making because what is the point yes. of policies or plans or projects, et cetera, without proper data? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we, we really maintain that it is data that should drive evidence-based decision-making. I mean, oftentimes decisions are made uh, without the best available data to be able to make the best available decision. So one of the things, and, and also through the establishing of the Caribbean Shark Coalition, which we recently did together with Beneath the Waves, uh, we really want to have enough data to make the case that these animals should be protected throughout their range, throughout their migratory range, um, and not only the species, but also their, their associated habitat. So it's really a tool that we're using uh, to call for larger marine protected areas, transboundary marine protected areas in the wider Caribbean. Yeah, you mentioned them, it's the Caribbean Shark Coalition, so you can feel free to jump straight into that. Um, yeah. uh, when did when did it start or when did you guys decide to form the coalition? I want to know the inception um, from the idea sure. to the end point. Well, we published a, an article in Science, in the journal Science in February 2020, mm -hmm. which is only, you know, a year and, and some ago, it feels like a different era with it corona, does. et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but anyway, during much different times, we uh, we had a, an article published in Science together with um, Austin Gallagher from Beneath the Waves, uh, Ollie Shipley, uh, Neil Hammerschlag from the University of Miami, Diva Amon from Species, uh, mm -hmm. a Trinidadian uh, researcher uh, focused on the deep sea. And, and in that article, we, uh, we called for 
uh, more focus on uh, the implementation and management of large marine protected areas in the wider Caribbean. Uh, and we use the example of sharks, and in this case, particularly the tiger shark, to show that it is a species that connects uh, most of the regions in the insular Caribbean through its migratory pattern, uh, and that the animal should be protected through its life stage and also its associated habitat. Uh, so from that, we started to think, I mean, all nice and great. We, we had something published in Nature, it got good traction, but there is a need to really focus on establishing an organization outside of sort of the government or international uh, framework, so outside of the EC or OECS or yeah. uh, CARICOM <laughs> or whatever, to really support the conservation work that is being done, not only by research institutions, but, you know, grassroots individuals on many of the Caribbean countries to provide uh, support in terms of science, but also lobby. Um, we are now uh, working on, on, on increasing our finances, so we're able to, to offer uh, shark tagging workshops, um, um, bring people on board, make the connections, increase collaboration so that the folks that are doing excellent work in the wider Caribbean region uh, have people there to support them um, on a grassroots level to execute their work so that they can get, again, get the data uh, so that they can provide it to their policymakers to have effective decision making. Uh, so those discussions happened in uh, in the middle of lockdowns in 2020. <laughs> you can imagine that we had quite some time on our hands. So yeah. Were, so we brainstormed quite a bit, and then it was decided that between Beneath the Waves and 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 DCNA, uh, that we would put some effort in, into establishing the Caribbean Shark Coalition. Uh, we were very surprised at the amount of people that signed up initially. I think we had about 50 people in the initial sign up, uh, and it has only grown since then. Uh, and for the past few months, we have been working on uh, providing capacity training. Unfortunately, it has to all happen online until we get the clearance to to travel in person in person again. Uh, right. We gave a virtual shark tagging training. Uh, we've been supporting. Uh, Jamaica and setting up their shark tagging program. I went on a shark tagging trip that I supported uh, in the Turks and Caicos Islands in June. Uh, they came, uh, our, our representatives from the Caribbean Shark Coalition slash Beneath the Waves came on our two expeditions that we had, uh, one on St. Martin and one in uh, on the Saber Bank this year. Uh, mm -hmm. So the idea is to really provide the, the, the support to organizations that are doing or that want to do shark conservation work in the wider Caribbean. I mean, before the coalition was established, you know, people knew that we were involved in shark conservation work. So often they would contact us, ask right. tips and uh, recommendations. And we said, you know, instead of doing it, you know, on an ad hoc, excuse me, on an ad hoc basis, uh, let's make sure that there's some structure in place so that it can continue and that people can continue supporting each other and collaborating to make sure that there is uh, yeah, that there is increased conservation uh, of the species and, and their habitat in the wider Caribbean region. Yeah, I love that. I love that because we definitely need the regional cooperation with all the politics involved. So Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> I mean, a shark is not going to say, you know, a shark is not going to say, you know, let me uh, stay out of the waters of Trinidad. Let me go back up north to uh, Grenada because they're going to eat me on Maracas Bay. Exactly. Uh, so that's why we we really want to come with an organization that sort of transcends the political considerations and puts the focus on Caribbean being the Caribbean uh, to have uh, the work done and to support the work that is being done. And for me, it's also exciting. I mean, I, I, I consider many of the folks throughout the region my friends, especially the ones that are uh, working on, on this type of work. And, and, you know, it's a dream come true of mine to be able to uh, to support that work. 
Yeah, I find it, especially like through this project, for example, like connecting with some of the other people throughout the islands and hearing what's mm-hmm. happening, what's going on, like it's very exciting. So I could just imagine yeah, for sure. for what sure. that feels and, like. And, you know, also, yeah, and also meeting each other, you know, I mean, I know uh, you mentioned Jeffrey from the Caribbean Cetacean Society. I know that if there's something that has to do with whales, I can, you know, yeah. shoot him a WhatsApp and he'll reply immediately. And And that's really something that we want to, to foster and support and grow within the, the wider Caribbean region. Uh, and something that, you know, we don't want it to be limited by sort of the artificial human constructs of borders, <laughs> and, you know, governments, because, you know, for lack of a better term, a, a shark don't give a, a blank um, <laughs> about about political borders or, or uh, government considerations or whatever have you. Yes, very true. So um, I want to know what are some, who are some of the organizations that are currently part of the coalition? Cool. It's a tough question because <laughs> my brain. I know that there, oh, there are so many, I don't even know. All of the Dutch Caribbean conservation organizations, for sure. Various national trusts, the National Trust of Anguilla, uh, Antigua, water sports operators from Antigua. Uh, I mentioned Jamaica, Yardy Divers in Jamaica, Alligator Head Foundation has also participated, Turks and Caicos Department of Environment, uh, Big Blue Collective in the TCI, all of the research organizations in the Bahamas. Um, we've been in contact with species in Trinidad, Canary we've been in contact with, Caribbean Cetacean Society, the Caribbean Manta Program. It's quite a long list. Uh, I love it. With, but, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll drop the details, uh, the, the uh, website details for the Caribbean Shark Coalition uh, so, that, so that people, folks can go and, and check. And we're still like, you know, it's not a closed group at all, the more the merrier. So uh, mm-hmm. Even this week, we still have have requests for uh, presentations and, and more information for people who are interested in joining. And we also hope, you know, I mean, I'm talking about the Caribbean islands, but the aim is to also involve Mexico and Central America and, and you know, Guyana, uh, Suriname, French Guyana, because these are all countries that, that also uh, are doing good work, often with very little support and that we would love to support in the work that they do. Yeah, no, sounds absolutely amazing. It's all great. I Like I said before, I'm probably going to sound like a broken record, but I really love it. <laughs> and soon enough, hopefully, um, well, I just got the position of regional representative of Sustainable Ocean Alliance, and we're trying to start a Sustainable Ocean Alliance Caribbean. So maybe just maybe we will join as well and get some youth oh, involved sure. and stuff. Definitely, I, definitely. Mm-hmm. You mentioned going to schools and stuff. So I think it's always so good to have young people involved and inspired and because they're going to take yeah. up the mantle next. Oh, and no. sharks and sharks. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> and sharks, quite honestly, are, are, it's not difficult to sell to uh, to have youth come on board uh, and participate in, uh, in some of the projects. I mean, going to the schools and presenting is one thing, but having a boat large enough where we can invite some school children over, it's really some of the highlight that I've ever been through in my career. And we try to, to ensure that we do it on, on uh, despite some of the logistical difficulties. Mm-hmm. And of course, we don't want the kids to lose any of their uh, their <laughs> extremities. But it's it's one of the, the most fulfilling parts is to be able to bring the kids on on, on sort of the uh, the the shark tagging trip so that they can see how it's working. Right. Uh, they can see how smelly and stinky it is when we chum and bait for the animals. Uh, and then can participate in the data collection as well, whether it's taking a genetic sample, taking measurements, you know, it's just to see that wonder and that excitement that I felt as a kid uh, yeah. and to see that continue and to grow. It's it's awesome. 
uh, really get them involved, hand, hands-on, and then get them inspired. And then yeah, we have a definitely. whole new generation of shark-loving yeah. marine warriors out yeah. there. So yeah. Then hopefully I can retire early and just spend the rest of my days diving. <laughs> Sounds like an excellent retirement plan. I, would, I, I wouldn't <laughs> I doubt. So <laughs> but you mentioned shark tagging, and I would love to know what goes into that exactly. That seems like such a, I don't want to say interesting again, because I've been saying that so much, but like a complex activity. Sure. Um, it's, I mean, once, once you're used to the motions, it's actually not too difficult. I mentioned before that we use a method called drumlining, which is basically uh, a shark eradication method that we adapted to to use for for scientific research purposes. Mm-hmm. So the way that it works is that there's a heavyweight that's attached to a length of line. Uh, the heavyweight goes into the water. Uh, the length of line goes to the surface. On the surface, there's a buoy. To that buoy is attached what we call a ganjin line, which is about a two meter line that goes right below the surface. To that ganjin line is tied a leader line, which is a, a wire piece of wire uh, that is difficult for the sharks to bite through. And to that leader line is attached a piece of bait uh, that is attached to a high carbon circle hook. We use high carbon circle hooks because they cause the the least amount of of negative impact to the shark. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're made specifically to be able to hook in the mouth of the animal. Uh, And we also use high carbon hooks just in the the event that we're unable to cut the hook loose. Uh, Because of its high carbon content, the hook will rust out in a few months. And the shark won't have anything more embedded in its mouth. Um, the bait that we use is bonito, which is a, I'm well aware that it's a tuna species, but it is a sustainable tuna species. It's not on any uh, avoid lists, um, right. but it is an important bait fish to use because it's very oily. Its skin is very oily and it, and it also has a high blood content. So the tigers especially like it. We have this rig, so this setup done for various depths, depending on the depth that we want to fish. Uh, this rig goes into the water for you know, an hour, hour and a half. Usually we do it for an hour because there are some species that if you have them on a hook too long, uh, they can they can have some some significant negative effects, especially um, hammerheads uh, right. are very susceptible to injury and, and to mortality because of, of the method. But tiger sharks and nurse sharks, they, they don't they don't care at all. They can be on the line <laughs> for 12 hours and they can still survive. They're very hard. They just creatures. be chilling. Yeah, basically that's what they do. They had a free meal and then they don't realize that they're about to be abducted and get a bunch of implants. So after the hour, hour and a half soak time, uh, we approach the hook. Usually while we approach, we can, you know, we can already tell, especially if there's something big on the line. Then uh, we go into a process which I'm usually the one uh, involved in that called walking the dog. Uh, so depending on the shark, depending on how much, you know, how tired the animal is and how much steam it has left, we go through a process called walking the shark. That's just basically me or whoever else is doing it, holding the line that the animal is attached to uh, by the head. So the line that the animal is hooked to mm-hmm. and walking the animal back and, back and forth next to the boat uh, to make sure that we calm it down. Uh, to ensure that that the animal is ready to to receive its tail rope. Um, so when I finally manage to have the animal in a good position, I then yell to the tail rope team, uh, which is usually a team of two people that mm-hmm. have a rope made in a way that it can fit around the tail of the shark. And once we have that fit around the tail of the shark, the animal is secured on the side of the boat. So the tail is secured on the side of the boat. And then we, we secure the head on the, on the on the front end of the boat. And then the animal is secured. 
uh, and then we're ready for our scientific uh, workup of the animal. It's called the workup. Tiger sharks, like many other sharks, have are experienced a phenomenon called tonic immobility, uh, which means that if you flip it upside down, kind of the electronic receptors that the shark has mm -hmm. uh, in its snout and along its body kind of short circuit, and the animal basically relaxes quite heavily which makes it easier to do our uh, our data collection of the animal yeah. so the first thing that we usually do is take measurements uh, we usually take four measurements so from the tip of the snout to the base of the tail mm -hmm. uh, then from the tip of the snout to the fork of the tail uh, and then total length so from the tip of the snout to the end of the tail and then we also take a girth length, which is how fat the animal is, which is often difficult to do because some tiger sharks, especially when they come into the 12, 13, 14 foot range, and they can be six, seven foot fat. So uh, it wow. takes quite a bit of work to get the girth, the girth measurement. We call them buses when they get to that. <laughs> um, after the measurements have been taken, we usually determine what the sex of the animal is, um, which is important for you know, determining what the, what that particular habitat functions as, whether it's mating area, breeding area, whatever have you. Uh, after the after we determine the sex, we usually implant uh, a, a pit a pit tag. Pit stands for passive internal transponder, uh, okay. and it's the same little chip that you put in in household pets, uh, so that you can keep track of them. Little small size of rice uh, electronic um, transmitter. Uh, so we put that in, then we put, uh, then we usually take a, a, a genetic sample from the dorsal fin, uh, will help, which help us determine the, the genetics. Uh, then we take blood so that we were able to do a diet analysis, hormone analysis, make sure, you know, we can analyze uh, whether there are any heavy metals in the animal. Uh, then we attach a visual tag, so a Floyd tag or a spaghetti tag, Mm -hmm. uh, which it's called a sp spaghetti tag because it's usually brightly colored, yellow or orange, uh, and it has basic information if anyone catches or sights the shark, who to contact, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then finally, we put on the satellite tag, um, which can be quite a long process because it, it often involves drilling uh, the satellite tag in the dorsal fin of the animal. It sounds gnarly, but there are very little nerve endings, or in some species, no nerve endings in the dorsal fin of the animal. Uh, so the animal doesn't feel the process. It's just, you know, zoned out and, and especially the tiger sharks waiting yeah. for us to finish. Uh, usually that's where we leave it. So after that process, we usually cut it loose and, and leave the animals swim away. But the last expedition we on, we added an additional layer where we um, also all ultrasounded the animal, which is just exactly as it sounds. It's an ultrasound, the same that humans use or that we use on animals. Uh, of course, adapted to be used um, at sea so it can get wet. And we, you know, in the in the cavity of the animal, we check to see if it's carrying any pups, yes or no. Uh, and then usually after that, whether we have confirmation or not, the animal, the hook is cut loose, the tail rope is taken off, uh, a gentle push is given, and the animal usually swims away. Uh, in the event that the animal doesn't swim away on its own, usually then we put an unlucky slash lucky person in the water to physically <laughs> grab onto the animal and swim the animal a few meters to get the water flowing over its gills. Uh, and then it usually goes off along, along its own merry way. So that's what the process is uh, in a nutshell. If we don't put a satellite tag, we can get everything done in about five to eight minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, if we put a satellite tag on, it usually increases to about 20 minutes to half an hour. All that in 20 minutes or half an hour. <laughs> it sounded like... In, in, the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning, it took some time. When we, when we, were, trained, when we were being trained on the, on the method, 
uh, and we were putting satellite tags in. We were at about 45 minutes to an hour, hour time frame. But now we've done it so much. And I'd like to consider ourselves a, a finely tuned machine that in about 20 minutes to half an hour, we can get it out of the way. That literally sounded like a two-hour process. I was so shocked <laughs> when you said about half an hour and stuff. But wow, no, as someone who is heavily immersed in like the climate space, because I studied climate change and development and whatnot, like learning about sharks and stuff from you, I feel like I want to go and do some more reading. I need to up my knowledge because this is all so fascinating. You can join us for one of the trips when we come down to the Southern Caribbean. Don't say that. Don't say I would oh, join. No, <laughs> I would dread, I would take you seriously. I would see that you guys are coming and I would reach out and I'd be like, do you remember when we did the podcast recording and you invited me? But I'm clocking yeah. in on that invitation now. Yeah. You, you can hold me to it. I, I will. I will. <laughs> and so, but yeah. So do you guys have any future expeditions coming up for like 2022 as 2021 is coming to an end shortly? Well, we really hope to uh, to increase our our in-person capacity building through the Caribbean Shark Coalition in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we have to wait to see how uh, how Corona is developing. Uh, hopefully, we, we can be a little bit more out of the woods and travel becomes a little bit easier in 2022. One of the things that we're really working hard on is to have the Jamaica Shark Tagging Project done. Right. Um, so that we can get the data from our colleagues in Jamaica handled and that, that could start being analyzed. Uh, technically, sharks are protected in Jamaica, but there's very little data to to, to make any decision either way on, on the status of the animal. So that's something that we're really looking forward to. Of course, here in the Dutch Caribbean, we had two major expeditions this year, so I don't think we'll do anything much next year. Uh, we really set aside the next few years for data analysis and, and data reporting. Uh, But our work will continue in uh, the Bahamas, uh, in Turks and Caicos. Uh, We'll be continuing doing our work. And then hopefully uh, Antigua will also be coming online. Uh, So those are some of the ones in the pipeline. But yeah, our hope is really that when we have our first meetings in 2022, uh, there'll be numerous Caribbean countries or or numerous uh, uh, organizations in, in in, in the wider Caribbean that will start some of their work. And even if we're not physical to, uh, or, or even if we're not able to physically attend, we we'll try to do as much as we can virtually as well. And we've also received uh, financial support from the World Wildlife Fund, so we're going to use that financial support to also put together training clinic, uh, provide equipment. The idea is to also provide a whole bunch of tags and, and training on how to use the tag mm-hmm. uh, to our partners. So hopefully, it's it's going to be a busy 2022 for shark conservation in the Caribbean. Yes, I feel like I want to get you guys on in Trinidad to train <laughs> some young people on how to tag. And the sharks and everything and I'm, yeah. I'm, we've had mm-hmm. we've had discussions with Trinidad before so hopefully they can continue and, and they can you know become concrete and we're able to uh to travel down to one of my favorite <laughs> Caribbean countries and eat and tag sharks <laughs> yeah no I'm thinking like next year I could apply for our next micro grant from Sustainable Ocean Alliance sure. and, and we can make it happen I I'm not even worried I'm pretty about sure it. Yeah. (laughs) So I know there's like a lot of young people that want to get involved in this field. They don't know where to start. No. Before I go into that, let's go on. What do you think people can do to protect our sharks and our rays and stuff in the region? Because sometimes, you know, we don't really understand. We don't know what's going on or we feel like this problem is above us. And we don't even know where to begin. So any advice you could give on what we can do? Sure. I mean, for sharks specifically, just uh, what I always recommend to people is that they uh, do their information. I mean, that's something that we hear 
quite often during during the times that we find ourselves living in that you know there's a lot of information out there uh, mm-hmm. so do your research and research is uh, reaching out to organizations that are on the Carib- that are on the Caribbean islands that are doing uh, conservation activities on the species. You can follow Caribbean Shark Coalition on on social media. You can follow Dutch Caribbean Nature Alliance on social media. Uh, Beneath the Waves is also on social media, and those are really good resources to educate yourselves or, or to edit for people to get good information and education on why the species is important, what are what is being done to protect the species. Uh, and what people can also individually do to to conserve the species. What I often tell people is that the ocean is 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 a web. Many different things are interconnected. Um, so some of the the uh, sustainable ocean behavior that you hear are often mentioned are some of the best things that you can do to also protect this and conserve the species. Um, make sustainable seafood choices. Uh, avoid sharks. Don't eat them. They're not good for you. Um, they contain high levels of mercury uh, mm-hmm. and other heavy metals. And they can cause significant health impacts if you eat them. All of the things that are being said about using the liver for joint support, the cartilage for <laughs> healthy bone systems, uh, all of that is nonsense. It's not supported in any science whatsoever. It's just you're buying items off of an endangered species that have completely no health benefits, which in fact may have some detrimental health effects instead, you know, especially for our Caribbean men. Uh, there are some hormonal considerations which should be taken into account while avoiding shark products and shark meat. So really just avoid eating shark whatsoever. It's not a sustainable seafood choice. Uh, and it's the same as avoiding Nassau grouper, um, you know, pirate fish, you know, it falls within the same category of, of food that we should definitely avoid. Make sustainable choices when it comes to your use of plastics, reuse, recycle, reuse, reduce. Are supposed to be reduce, reuse, and recycle. <laughs> Same thing. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's usually recycle. I, I usually tell people that recycle should come at the bottom of the list. You should yeah. reduce the amount of plastics that you use. And if you use plastic, uh, you reuse it. Uh, and only if you can't reuse it, then you should go into the recycling bin. Um, you know, avoid straws, uh, plastic straws. We're not children. You can easily drink from, from a cup or from a glass. There's no reason to use them. Um, single-use plastic bags are also made by the devil. So uh, just carry a reusable uh, shopping bag. I mean, these these very little choices can often have significant impacts, especially if it's a community-wide effort uh, on the conservation and, and, and sustainable use of our ocean resources. And yeah, you know, if you see misinformation being shared on social media, like I mentioned, it's an a shark is an apex level predator. They are often negative, or not often, but negative human shark interactions do occur. Um, but then so does uh, negative uh, lion shark interactions on the uh, lion human interactions on the savannas of Africa. And you don't hear people calling for the complete extermination of lions uh, in Africa. And yeah. sharks fulfill the same type of of role in the ocean ecosystem. So counteract negative uh, sensationalist information that you found on uh, that you found on social media and really uh, educate yourselves and educate your community as to the importance of the species and the habitat that it that it calls home. I think it's also important to mention that it's not only the species that we should protect, but also its associated habitat. Yeah, I, f- I feel like I should be giving you a round of applause. Like that was an excellent <laughs> wrap up and stuff. But yeah, but Trinidad, I hope you guys heard it is not good for you to not eat bacon shark. We could we could start yeah, hunting and catching lionfish, and we could eat bacon lionfish and season it up the same way. And I sure you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference. So we really need to yeah. stop eating our no, shark. And, and and that's that's an important point. I mean, part of our initial research that we were doing 
Uh, we also did a seafood market analysis. Mm-hmm. And I can guarantee you the majority of, of the species are mislabeled. Uh, and that also goes with, with some of the shark product, products out there. Uh, that instead of, you know, we've had salt fish that turned out to be shark. Then we had things that were labeled as shark, turned out to be tilapia, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's an odd. You know, it, it really, yeah, makes sustainable seafood choices and avoid eating the, the animals. Uh, it's probably your best bet to contribute to its conservation. Yeah. And I like how you said, get informed. And, you know, I always tell people who ask me how I got into this field or how it is I'm where I'm at or doing what I just like, just knowledge, knowledge is power. I just read, yeah, I, knowledge is power. I studied, I took part, I joined different organizations and stuff, but yeah. Any advice that you could give to young people? Because sometimes they don't, they don't take me on. <laughs> and even though I am like their, their peer and stuff, you know, they don't really take me on. So any advice you can give to young people interested in getting in this field, specifically sharks or just marine conservation in general? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I always tell tell young people that if I get an email from a young person wanting to get into the field, asking for inter- information, needs help with a school project, is looking for an internship, I usually give that priority any time of day over a head of state or a government official or whatever have you contacting me. So don't be afraid to reach out, whether it's to your local organizations or to a regional organization such as the Caribbean Shark Coalition or even DCNA or whatever have you. I mean, there are organizations out there that are that are more than, than happy to help. And I would prioritize guiding, guiding youth and guiding youngsters towards the conservation field. So yeah, I mean, follow us on our on our social media channels. That's Caribbean Nature Alliance, Beneath the Waves, Caribbean Shark Coalition. Uh, and then you'll find our contact info. And if you need more information, don't hesitate. I mean, I'm always uh, more than willing and more than prepared to uh, to engage and to answer and to collaborate with uh, with some of our younger folks. I mean, uh, the reason that I'm in the field that I am is I had, you know, great people that supported me in my conservation journey as it became my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm more than happy to do the same for, for um, my Caribbean brethren and sisters who, who are also interested in, in exploring the same opportunities. So yeah, get your information. And if you need that information to come from us, we're more than happy to give it. That's great, guys. Make sure and reach out. And I feel like I'm living proof to that. I sent you guys an email and instantly I got response. And, you know, here we are recording this episode. It wasn't a drag. I didn't have to beg and plead. It was, <laughs> it was one time. Yeah, sure, Khadija, let's do it. Let's make it happen. So, you know, For definitely. Sure. Yeah, we, we really want uh I mean, we, we, we're go-getters. We really want to, to involve, to collaborate. Uh, we love the work that we do, and we want to share that love and that experience and that, uh, you know, that important, that feeling that you get when you know that you've contributed to, to nature and to mm-hmm. uh, your community. I think we want to really share that throughout the region. Yeah, it's very empowering. So before we go, I've, I've been having everyone from the Caribbean teach me a phrase or two in their respective languages, you know. So we in the Dutch Caribbean, so I have to learn some papimento. Am I am I saying that right? Yes. Right, you're saying it right. <laughs> right, yes. I have to learn some papimento. I went to Curacao and I came back with not a phrase. So it's only oh, fair. No. <laughs> it's only fair not that even the swear word. No, not even the swear words. I just spend the time drinking margaritas on the beach, enjoying my vacation. Uh, well, <laughs> so, so, right. Yeah, so I would love for you to teach me a phrase. So, proteja bo naturaleza. So, proteja means protect, bo means your, and naturaleza means environment. So, proteja bo naturaleza means protect your environment. Okay, a little slower. <laughs> 
Proteha. Proteha. Bo. Bo or do? Bo. 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 B-O. Naturaleza. Naturaleza. Yeah. Proteha, bo, naturaleza. Proteha, bro. No, I said bro. <laughs> Just a proteha, bo, naturaleza. Yes, exactly. Perfect. Close enough. Close enough. It could work. No, no, no. That's it. That's it. Not even close. <laughs> you, you, you got it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. You already um, told people where they could find the Caribbean Shark Coalition as well as CCNA on social media. So, guys, make sure and reach out. Make sure and connect. You know, we have more great episodes ahead. Be sure to follow them. And if you enjoy this episode, give the Eco Vibes podcast some love and share it with your friends and family. And be sure to follow myself on my socials at Eco Vibes to keep up to date with the Caribbean Ocean Perspective project. It's very exciting. I don't know if you guys can tell, but we've been learning a lot and there's so much more to learn and stuff. So make sure and follow Antadio once again. Thank you so much for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure learning from you. I I feel like now I'm a professional. I know so much. <laughs> so I, Our pleasure was all mine. And I will see you guys in the next episode. So bye, everyone. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> bye, everyone. And, th- and thank you so much for, uh, for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs>